Matthew 15, beginning in verse number 21. And uh, if you've looked ahead on the bulletin, you've seen that what we're going to be talking about today is this idea of great faith. Great faith. That comes up in this passage. Jesus speaking to a very interesting person. Uh, it's a wonderful passage. Uh, so many little details in this passage that give us a lot to hold on to. And uh, as we think about this topic of great faith, and as we think back on where we've been in Matthew, and we come to this portion today, um, it's really no surprise that directly after coming off of Jesus teaching about what makes a person truly clean or unclean, and essentially after telling the Pharisees from Jerusalem that their, their ceremonial purification could not actually purify them, then what we get next in Matthew is an example about how Jesus goes to a region and ministers to people who would have been considered entirely unclean by the Jewish leaders. The main character really in the passage that we have today is this Gentile woman, this Canaanite woman, who is a woman of incredible faith, remarkable faith, faith so great that that's what Jesus himself remarks about it. He says her faith is great. As I was studying this passage, of course, I was reminded of the great chapter Hebrews 11, which is all about faith, and particularly in verse number six, which says this. Without faith, it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. I think what we see today in Matthew 15 is a good example of that description in Hebrews 11, 6. There's, there's an intense believe, there's a trusting, and there's a seeking after the Lord Jesus specifically in the life of this Canaanite woman that we meet. There's no denying that she has full assurance and conviction that Jesus could help her. Nothing could deter her, as we will see. Nothing could persuade her otherwise. And she demonstrated, as we will read, true and great faith. And sort of by way of introduction this morning, I want to ask that question. What is true faith? Or what is great faith? faith. For centuries, Christians have spoken of true faith, of this great faith, in a way that I think is helpful. It's not, it's not the end all. It's not a perfect description. But faith is often said to have three parts or three elements. One is knowledge. That is the content of our faith, what we know, the truths from scripture and about Jesus that we read and we take them to be true. It's the content of what we believe. But faith, of course, goes beyond just what we know. And there's also assent. Assent is the conviction that what we know and what we've read is true. And not only is it true, but it has a real impact and bearing on our lives. But again, it's not enough to simply know something. And it's not really enough even to admit that it's true but also wrapped up in faith, it's said that we have trust. That is personal trust and reliance. In other words, it takes the content of the Christian message of the scripture and the belief that it is true and applicable, and it puts feet on it. A 
common illustration of this is simply to think of a chair. I can look at this chair over here and I know it's a chair. I, I don't have any doubt in my mind that it is a chair. I believe that if I were to sit on it, it would support my weight. But until I actually take the step of trust and reliance by sitting on that chair, I haven't really completed that exercise, have I? Now, those three things, knowledge, assent, and trust, they're, they're not perfect terms. They don't guarantee a perfect understanding of faith, but I do think they are helpful. And I also think they accurately describe what we see in Scripture, even in that verse in Hebrews 11. There's that knowledge that God is, that he exists. There's assent. There's a belief that not only he is, but it's applicable to our lives because he is a rewarder. God interacts with people. But then finally, there is that trust, which puts legs on the whole thing because we believe that God is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Knowledge, assent, and trust. Faith is a critical part of our Christian walk. After all, we just read there in that passage that without faith, it is impossible to please God. Another portion in that same passage tells us that it's by faith that the elders, the people in scripture that we read about, the saints, that's how they gained a good report or a good standing with God. Faith, we read, is how Abraham was, was justified before God. Faith is how we are justified as well in the sight of God. And as we've read through the Gospel of Matthew and we look in the other Gospels as well, it seems that faith is the thing that Jesus was looking for in his followers. Not just amusement or interest, not just intrigue or even excitement, but real, genuine faith. And we see that in our passage today. So sort of the big idea for today is this, if you're following along. Faith is the instrumental element in following Jesus. In this passage, we really see that Christ's compassion and his provision flow through the conduit, so to speak, of faith. Well, let's read Matthew 15, beginning in verse number 21. And for now, we'll read just down through verse number 31. Follow along as I read. Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And she said, yes, Lord, even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee, and he went up on a mountain and sat down there, and great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others, and they put them at his feet, and he healed them, so that the crowd wondered 
when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing. And they glorified the God of Israel. We'll pause there for a moment, and let's pray again that the Lord would help us as we look at this passage uh, to gain insight and to glean from it today. Lord Jesus, thank you for your words and your works here that we read about in this passage. I pray that as we see these interactions, as we see this example of great faith, this example of your compassion and these examples of your provision, Lord, that we would also be driven to have this kind of faith, the faith that doesn't simply know or even just believe, but that trusts fully and personally in you as one who is able to help and ultimately to save. Guide us as we read and think, help us to apply these things, to make them personal, not just mere information again, Lord, and be with us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, first thing we come to in this passage is that example of great faith when that Canaanite woman. And again, if you remember last week, we read that we looked at another controversy, yet another controversy with the Pharisees. And this time they came with a, a delegation, it seems, from Jerusalem to that, or from that great city, Jerusalem. And Jesus denounced them as being hypocrites. And he wrote off what seemed to be their trust in their traditions, in the way that they believed that one was made pure. And it seems after that interaction that perhaps Jesus needed another break. He sought reprieve. He said he went there or went away from there and withdrew, uh, verse 21. So he's, he's withdrawing from the situation. The tension was mounting. We're not there at the pinnacle yet, but we've known for several chapters that this group of people was seeking how they could destroy Jesus. And of course, he knew that. Jesus knew that eventually it would be these very leaders that would execute him. And he also knew that that was part of the plan, but it wasn't that time yet. So it says he withdrew from there to the district of Tyre and Sidon. The region of Tyre and Sidon were outside of Israel. Tyre was about 25 miles northwest of the region in Galilee where Jesus spent most of his time. Sidon was about another 25 miles or so beyond that. This journey could have taken anywhere from a, a number of weeks to even all told by the time they get back a number of months. Now we've seen Tyre and Sidon before in scripture, even in Matthew, and we've noted that they are infamously spoken about in scripture. They were important cities of trade and commerce, even up to Jesus' day, but they were also noted for their wickedness. And we won't turn there, but in Ezekiel chapter 28, we read specifically of the kings of Tyre as examples of pride and arrogance. However, we've also seen Jesus use these very cities as examples of faith. If you remember back in Matthew 11, he began to denounce, it says, the cities in verse 20, where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. And he said, woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago 
in sackcloth and ashes, but I tell you it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And not only that, but early in Jesus' ministry, if you read in Mark chapter 3 and Luke chapter 6, we see that people from these regions early on in his ministry heard about his works and they followed him. And now he comes to those regions and we meet one of them. And we read in verse number 22, behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon but he didn't answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him saying, send her away for she's crying out after us. And he answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So here onto the scene comes a Canaanite woman. Now, just as a side note, as, as students of scripture, it shouldn't be lost on us that these descendants of the Canaanite people were really only still around for two reasons. One is that the Israelites failed to drive them out of the land as they were told to in the Exodus. And second to that, but really related, is the fact that God showed mercy in allowing them to remain despite his commands for them to be driven out. And this Canaanite woman in particular would receive a mountain of God's mercy. We're told that she came to Jesus crying out. In fact, she continued, that's the way it reads. She continued to cry out. She kept on yelling, have mercy or take pity on me, O Lord, son of David. Now that is a packed statement because Within that statement, she recognizes her need. She speaks in terms of needing mercy or pity. She also speaks of Jesus with the highest terms of respect. And she even uses the title Son of David, which we've already seen many times as being messianic. Lord, Son of David, take pity on me. And at this point, you might wonder, are these terms merely of respect in order to gain an audience with Jesus? I mean, she was a Canaanite woman. This was a, a Jewish teacher. What did they have to do with one another? Or are they terms of true belief? Well, we certainly will see. But anyways, the text tells us that she desired mercy because her daughter was was severely or wickedly oppressed by a demon. We don't know exactly what that looked like in this case, but we know in several other cases where we've seen demon oppression looking like a person being made deaf or dumb or caused to have erratic behavior or even extreme violence. This woman needed help. Her daughter was severely, was wickedly oppressed by a demon. And she came to Jesus and she begged him for help, for mercy. And what's interesting about this account is for the first time, we come to an interaction where somebody asks Jesus for help. And initially, if you only read to verse 24 or 26, he seems to refuse to help her. In fact, before he gives any response at all, which his first response is, is negative seemingly, he seems to ignore her or at least 
it seems like he didn't hear her. But we know that he must have heard her because the disciples came up to him and said, hey, Jesus, this, this lady, she, she's crying after us. She's following us. She won't leave us alone. And they, they tell Jesus, would you send her away? And at that point, they probably didn't care whether he helped her or just told her to leave. But they were getting upset about this. In fact, you know, thinking about this in human terms, this is now another example where they've probably gone away for some sort of rest. And here they are bombarded again with people that want them to help. So humanly speaking, they might have been quite frustrated. But what about Jesus? Now, his first words, after his disciples sort of implore him to do something, he turned around and he answered her and he said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. In other words, I'm not supposed to help you. Now, why would Jesus say that? Well, for starters, it was technically true. Jesus' primary mission on earth was to come as a Messiah for the people of Israel, for his people. Not that the plan or intention was, was never to go beyond the borders or to, or to never exercise his mercy and power on other people, but his statement was true to his mission. He came first to his people, the Jewish people, the Israelite people. But many people take these words, and I tend to share in this opinion that these words of Jesus are words that test this woman's faith. I think that's a major element because we know even just in Matthew that Jesus has already helped people who were not Jewish. For instance, the Roman centurion whose servant he healed. We know that Jesus had already used his power and shown mercy on Gentile people in the past, so why could he not do it now? He must have had a reason. Well, his first response that I have come or I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel, that didn't turn the woman away. We pick it up in verse 25 and it says she came. So apparently she had been at some distance, possibly respecting him as a Jewish person, her being a Gentile woman. She may have known something about the ceremonial laws that Jesus had just uh, uh, just dealt with in the last few verses, and she was distant from him. But now she came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. Now, she didn't ignore Jesus' statement, and she didn't even deny it. She didn't say, oh, that can't be true. Uh, you have to help us too. You can't just be here for the Israelite people. She didn't ignore it. She didn't deny it, but she simply still asked, Lord, help me. She knelt before him. The word here is the same word that is used often for worship. And perhaps that's what she intended. She knelt before him. She spoke so highly to him, Lord. She no doubt had heard of his power, even of his demon delivering power. It's possible that another demon oppressed person had, had told in that region about Jesus' ability to cast demons out. Perhaps even the, the two men of Gadara were told in, in Mark that they went out into the Gentile regions and told all about it. Maybe she heard from them. 
But again, Jesus responds with something that's negative. It, it really is even hard to, to read, hard to swallow. He says, when she says, Lord, please help me, he answered, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now, to call somebody a dog in our day would be a severe insult. And to call somebody a dog in Jesus' day was also an insult. In fact, it was a common slander or derision for Jewish people to refer to the Gentiles as, as dogs. And the reason for that is because dogs, by and large, were not pets as we have them. Dogs, by and large, were were dangerous, mangy, flea-infested, infected, and, and they were hated, dangerous pests that sort of roamed the wilderness of Palestine. And when they came near people, they really just wanted food, but oftentimes they were dangerous because of diseases they carried and, and uh, for perhaps even rabies-like infections. So to call somebody a dog was really a slander. However, there are some elements in Jesus' words that give us a hint that maybe he was thinking differently. For one, he speaks of the dogs among children. This dog seems to be in the household. And in fact, that's exactly what he intended because the word he used for dog was not the common slanderous word for a, a wild and undomesticated dog, but there were, in fact, small dogs that were kept as house pets, even in that day. And that's the word that Jesus uses. So we could say he at least softens it a bit. And why would he do that? Why would he speak in these terms? If he was meaning to be offensive, why wouldn't he just use the normal offensive term? Everybody else did it. Another thing, and we have to read between the lines here, and there's no proof, but we also don't know just how Jesus said these words. Did he say them with a snarl? Or did he say them with a grin? We know that in modern day, it's pretty common, especially for men and young men, to joke with one another. And even the best of friends, we often use terms of derision and you know call somebody a loser or you know uh, whatever. But they know and we know that we're just having fun. And in fact, it's a term of endearment. Could it be that Jesus was speaking with a grin, with a reassuring grin? It's possible. Can't say for sure. But what we can say for sure is that Jesus, again, was testing this woman's faith. And what we see is Jesus showing to those around, probably specifically his, his Jewish disciples, that he was in fact about to answer the pleas and the prayer of a Gentile Canaanite woman. And in emphasizing that vast disparity, that cultural separation, that technical separation because of the laws of purification, by emphasizing that social divide, and the hostility that had been present for centuries, emphasizing the common view that Gentiles were totally unclean and out of God's purview, then the stage is set for one of two things. Either Jesus here will, will keep the status quo of how another rabbi would have dealt with this woman, or 
the stage is set for doing something remarkable. And what comes next is something remarkable, but it's not immediately what Jesus does. It's what the woman says. Look at verse number 27. She said, yes, Lord, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. This is a sharp girl. She stays right with Jesus' metaphor. And she picks up on the fact that he uses the word for house pets. And she says, I know that you don't give the full meal to the house pets, but the dogs in the house at least lick up the crumbs off the floor. It's almost as if she's saying, yes, I know who you are. I know you're the Jewish Messiah. I know you have a mission to accomplish. And I know I'm not one of your covenant people, but I also know there is enough power and blessing in you for some of the scraps to spill over to me. And she was right. And in fact, if we take into account what scripture says, she really was being modest because the Old Testament predicts that not only would there be scraps for people other than Israel, but even from Genesis 12, we read that an essential element of God's calling Abraham was that there would be blessing reserved for all the nations of the earth. And to follow that up, Jesus Christ, the son of David, the seed of Abraham, which is how Matthew begins this whole gospel record, he is the one that primarily fulfills that blessing as the seed of Abraham. We know that all the nations of the earth can be blessed truly in Jesus. Even this Canaanite woman and even you and I, who are not children of God by birth, but rather by faith. Verse 28, Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Whatever Jesus' intention was, whatever tone of voice he was speaking in with the seemingly negative words, he had accomplished what he wanted to do and he had seen what he was looking for. And that is great faith. The word for great is the word mega. That's the prefix for it. And that's where we get our prefix mega. Uh, and it sounds funny, but Jesus said, oh woman, you have mega faith. And why was it mega faith? Why was it great faith? Well, we can take a few takeaways, I think, before we read on. One is that her faith was in Jesus. She may not have had a perfect understanding, but she had a good understanding of who Jesus was and what he could do. She knew enough to understand that if anybody could help, it was this man. Also, though, wrapped up in her faith was her understanding of herself. There wasn't an ounce of entitlement in her words or her request. She knew that Jesus did not owe her anything. She didn't presume for a moment that Jesus had to help her. But finally, wrapped up in her faith was her persistence. She knew who Jesus was and what he could do. She believed that it could be done even for her. 
and she trusted and persisted in it. We see all three of those elements of faith, knowledge, assent, and trust. And in that trust, we see a persistence that puts the knowledge and the assent on the road. It puts legs on it. It puts rubber on the tires, so to speak. That kind of persistence that we are taught to have. But do we often have it? Think of it in terms even of our prayers. Uh, Jesus himself in a parable said that our prayer should be persistent and earnest like the widow who gained justice from an unjust judge because of her persistence. And how much more does a loving father hear the persistent and earnest prayer? Or we could say, how much more does he see that earnest and genuine faith? Do you have great faith? Do you know about this Jesus? Do you believe that he is who he says he is? Maybe the answer to those two things is yes, but maybe the next question is, have you trusted him? Are there legs on your knowledge and on your belief? Do you trust him daily and persistently? This woman treated Jesus as if there was no hope elsewhere and she was right. And dear one, may we look at the Lord and consider the fact that there is no hope elsewhere. And from that, may we have that kind of faith. Well, we could go on about that, but let's move on in the passage. And uh, we see not only an example of great faith, but as Jesus leaves there, we see an example of his great compassion. We've seen his compassion on this woman as he healed her daughter, and that compassion flowed through that conduit of her faith. And now we see it in a larger scale. We don't know how long Jesus stayed in that region of Tyre and Sidon, but we know from Mark, when he records the same passage, that he traveled from there to the region of the Decapolis. The Decapolis was a region of 10 Greek cities. They they operated on the old Greek city-state sort of uh, government organization. They were independent. They were not part of Israel, or they didn't have anything to do with Israel's rulers. They were mostly a Gentile country. And we pick it up in verse number 30. It says, And great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others, and he put them at it, and they put them at his feet, and he healed them. Now, we don't want to miss the immensity of this scene. I think, in reading through the Gospels, this is one of the most descriptive scenes of a mass healing that we have. Matthew tells us that great crowds, and that word for great means many, many crowds of people came to him, and they brought to him all manner of broken humanity. They brought the lame, which could mean something as simple as halting or limping, but the word often means somebody who's missing a foot or a limb. They brought the blind. And again, vision problems were a hopeless condition in this time. And also, if you remember, we spoke before the fact that blindness 
was not something that we saw healed in the Old Testament, even by the prophets. They brought to him the crippled. This word means uh, unable to walk, but it means a deformity. Imagine somebody with undeveloped legs. In other words, something that was obviously, visibly impairing the person. They brought to him the mute, those who couldn't speak. And oftentimes the mute couldn't speak because they were also deaf and they'd never heard anybody else speak. And then it says they brought to him many others, any other number of unnamed diseases or maladies or conditions. It didn't seem to matter what it was. They brought them all and they put them at his feet. And you get this picture of sort of a pile of broken humanity. Many of them couldn't even walk and they were laying at Jesus' feet, a whole pile of people who had issues so obvious and so serious that nobody else in the world could help them, yet there they are at the feet of Jesus. And another element is if they truly are still in Gentile country and many or most of these are Gentile people, then in that moment, Jesus was surrounded by a whole pile and crowds of unclean people. And what does he do? He heals them all. And think about that. To be a little lighthearted for a moment, this is no you know, modern day TV healing where, you know, the guy with the fancy suit says, if you send in a hundred dollars, you know, he'll, he'll help you with your low back pain or your, uh, your arthritis or something like that. This is, this is no man where, a uh, there's some sort of invisible malady and yeah, the person feels better. No, these are people who couldn't walk, couldn't speak, couldn't see some of them possibly with missing limbs. They are made whole. There is no mistaking it. There's no manufacturing it. And it says that the crowd wondered. They were in amazement when they saw with their own eyes, they saw the mute speaking the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing. I mean, what else could you do if you saw a man with a withered limb or a missing foot suddenly made whole? What else could you do if you were a person who had never seen in your life and now you have vision? What else could you do if you, if you had a friend, a brother who could not speak he couldn't even hear you. And now he could speak. And what was their response? It was wonder. It was amazement. And notice, it says they glorified the God of Israel. It's one of the reasons why I think that Matthew intends for us to understand this is mostly a Gentile population because no other time do the gospel writers speak of, of Jewish people 
glorifying the God of Israel. It simply says they glorified God or praised God. But these people who were not Jewish by birth, these people who were not part of Abraham's seed, they saw Jesus' work as a Jewish man, and they could explain it in no other sense than this is the work of God. And contrast this to what we saw a few chapters ago when Jesus was in Nazareth and his own people, the people that he grew up with, his old neighbors who had seen and heard of the same kinds of miracles, yet their response was that they took offense at him. They rejected him. But here you have a whole multitude of Gentile people that are blessed by Jesus, and they glorified him. Whatever amount of faith they had in bringing their sick and laying them at Jesus' feet, it was rewarded. They heard, they believed, and they trusted, and then they glorified God for what he had done. And what a pattern for us as well. We know, we've heard the truth, we believe it in our minds, and and we trust him. And having done so, let us glorify God for what he has done. Well, finally, and we'll try to move through this in a timely manner, we see an example not only of his compassion, but also of great provision. We didn't read this part of the passage earlier, so let's pick it up in verse 32, read through the end of the chapter. Jesus called his disciples and said to him, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now for three days and they have nothing to eat. I'm unwilling to send them away lest they faint. And the disciples said to him, where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? And Jesus said to them, how many loaves do you have? They said seven and a few small fish. And directing the crowd to sit on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the crowds and they all ate and were satisfied and they took up seven baskets full of the broken pieces left over. Those who ate were 4,000 men beside women and children. Now, if you're thinking deja vu from a couple weeks ago, uh, you're not going crazy. Yes, we did, in fact, read just a few weeks ago an example of Jesus feeding a large crowd. That time, the feeding of the 5,000. And a lot of people, skeptics, use this as an example of saying, well, Matthew is just making up or doubling one of the stories to add some content to his uh, to his gospel record, you know, kind of when you have to write an essay in school and you use really long sentences and big words that you don't even know what they mean because you need to get to your word limit. Uh, and they kind of write this off as, well, Matthew's just added this in here. It didn't really happen. But I don't think that's it at all. In fact, the details in this story versus the last one are are quite different. For instance, the first crowd was a Jewish crowd. And this, if we follow what scripture seems to be indicating, is mostly a Gentile crowd. The first crowd, there were 5,000 men. This time, uh, 4,000 men. Also, the season has changed. In the first story, there was much grass. It was springtime, right before the Passover. 
This time, Jesus tells them to sit on the ground, which can be a word for the hard ground. It's probably late summer now, which makes sense because Jesus had traveled 50, 75 miles by this point to come back to this area. Also, the number of bread and fish is different. This time, it's, it's, uh, it's seven loaves and a few fish. Last time, it was five loaves and two fish. The first time, they took 12 baskets of leftovers. This time, seven baskets. Also of note, it's hard to see this in English, but the kind of baskets are different. In the first story, the word for baskets were, were traditionally Jewish baskets. But in this story, the word are traditionally Greek baskets. And also, they're huge baskets because it's the same kind of basket that the Apostle Paul was placed in and lowered over the city walls of Damascus. So these are huge baskets. So clearly, with all these details different, Matthew intends to tell us that, yeah, this is a different story. Jesus did it again. And I think it shows also a slightly different message. If you remember last time, the, the main message of the feeding of the 5,000 seemed to be a lesson for the disciples, a lesson that when Jesus said, you feed them, and they couldn't, they had to be shown the miraculous provision of God in serving and following Jesus. That when we're unable to do what God has given us to do, the power of Christ works through our inability. But in this passage, seems like the disciples have learned their lesson because when Jesus wanted to feed them, they said, where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? They were already taking it on themselves. But at the same time, underneath the words, you can kind of see them saying, Jesus, if this is going to happen again, we already know that you've got to do this, okay? <laughs> we understand we're not going to be able to do this. But also, this being and following these stories of Jesus healing the daughter of a Canaanite woman, healing this whole crowd of Gentile people, and now he's providing. We understand the unfolding of Christ's provision to all kinds of people. We see Jesus' compassion on a, a group of Gentiles in Gentile land, a group of people who had eagerly and faithfully stayed by Jesus' side now for three days, a group of people who had seen the work of Jesus and were convinced that he was working the works of God, and Jesus had compassion on them, and they were filled miraculously and completely by the Lord's provision. All of this, the Canaanite woman, the healings, the feeding, they stand in opposition to the attitude of the Pharisees who, who wouldn't come near a Gentile. They wouldn't socialize with them. They certainly wouldn't share a meal with them. And all of this is a lesson to us as readers that our interaction with Jesus, our following him, our standing before him, it's not on the basis of our upbringing. It's not on the basis, or it can't be, on the basis of the law. But rather, it's on the basis of faith. You probably know and are familiar with Ephesians 2, 
Matt read a portion of that earlier in our service. But just before that are the very well-known verses that say, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Like that Canaanite woman who brought nothing to Jesus except her need and her faith. She had no presumption. She made no argument for her deserving his help. She simply came. And by faith, her daughter was made whole. To read it again, we pick it up in verse 11 in Ephesians 2. Remember that at one time you, that's us, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. In other words, the the Israelite people. Remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant. And listen, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near. much like the Canaanite woman was, who was far off and she knew it, yet she was brought near. Much like that entire crowd filled with people who were hopeless and helpless, yet they were brought near. And much like that entire crowd of people who had been waiting three days with Jesus because they were in awe at him, who by the law shouldn't have even been near him, let alone to share a meal with him, yet they were provided for. And I ask, have you been made part of this family by faith? Paul goes on in that passage in Ephesians to speak about both Jews and Gentiles being made one in the household of God because of what Christ has done. Have you been made part of that household? And not just as a pet, like Jesus spoke, but as a brother, a sister, And more than that, a son. Have you come to this Jesus and received his grace through faith? Do you rest on on your ability or your upbringing? Or rather, do you see yourself as as needy and in, in need of pity and undeserving? And again, maybe you do know these things and even claim to believe, but do you trust him daily? Is your faith borne out in yourself, casting yourself daily on Jesus, in taking that position that I am hopeless apart from him? Do you cast yourself upon him like those maimed and those crippled and those blind were cast at his feet, knowing that only he could make the difference? Dear one, do you have faith? This kind of faith. Faith is the instrumental element of following Jesus. And his compassion and his provision flow through that conduit. May we trust in him. Lord, thank you for this, again, this passage, your word that has shown us these examples of great faith and then the compassion and provision that come through those They come from you. 
Lord, we cannot deny, we cannot question your power, your ability. We cannot even question your willingness as you've told us to come. What remains, Lord, is the question of faith. Lord, if there's one here who has never experienced or placed this faith in you, would they see that it's, it's more than knowledge, Lord? It's more than even admitting that it's true. It's, it's casting ourselves upon you as our only hope. Would they come to you today? And Lord, for many of us who have, maybe maybe we've had this kind of faith for, for years, for decades. Yet Lord, we need to re- be reminded, I need to be reminded that daily you are the only source of provision and compassion. And daily I have to cast myself upon you. If I have a moment of self-sufficiency, Lord, I'm bound for failure. Yet there you are with your mercy. Lord, may we see you as, again, our only hope. And will we give you glory? We pray this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.